Last episode, we brought up the unpleasant topic of dead people. Mostly because it's October, and that's the sort of thing podcasters like to do when presented with an obvious and easy theme they can slide a few episodes under. It saves time for everyone concerned. You get what you expect, and they don't have to work so hard. If only it were so easy for us. Even the simple stuff isn't so simple around here. There's reading and research and writing, and it all has to go somewhere, or what's the point? Sure, we could regurgitate facts from Wikipedia like anyone else, but what would be the point? It wouldn't be GM Word of the Week if we did that. It would just be Wikipedia, the narration. No, nothing so easy for us. Similarly, the actual topic isn't an easy out either. Sure, we could, and we have, done the obvious choices for a Halloween theme, but as outlined in the previous point, we haven't done them in the obvious way. No, for us, the allure of an obvious topic isn't the obvious stuff everyone else is going to do. It's the unknown information about a well-known topic that everyone else seems to gloss over in their haste to go home early for the weekend. But if you go through our archives, you'll see in here that we've covered all the usual ground and made all the unusual points and had very few early weekends along the way. Which left us in a quandary when it came time to participate in the usual October spookathon. What could be spookier than the wide range of topics we'd already covered? What might send chills up your spine that we hadn't already had lots to say about already? Well, very little, really. Very little. Except, as it turns out, no one is quite at home with the dead. Corpses are, by their nature, disquieting. If nothing else, they serve as a reminder of our own mortality, and no one likes to be reminded of that. Discovering a corpse just laying around the place will put anyone off their breakfast. But a corpse with a purpose, or rather, a corpse for which someone else has a purpose, is no longer just a corpse, it's a cadaver. Suddenly, the unwanted corpse is transformed into something any number of people are glad to see, something useful and welcome. And in case you aren't aware, there are any number of things you can do with a cadaver that the common garden-variety corpse is unsuited to. Thankfully, we've already laid the groundwork for this episode with our previous episode, and if you haven't heard it, you really should go back and listen to it, because it is important to understand the context in which we find ourselves in the present day as we talk about those days which have already passed and those which are yet to come. You have to know about the Romans throwing people they didn't consider people off cliffs just as much as you need to know about the terrible competition between medical schools in Europe that led to the deaths of 15 people in Scotland at the hands of Misters Burke and Hare, and why Dr. Robert Knox playing the innocent led to so much trouble and bother for everyone ever after. Just by way of example of some of the immediate effects, while Burke was executed and his skeleton put on display, Mr. Hare got off scot-free in exchange for his testimony, and went on to live a happy life, of course. Except he didn't. Hare ended up spending extra time in jail, even beyond the conviction and execution of Burke, mostly for his own protection. See, no one liked the fact that he'd gotten away with his part in the murders, and the general public was very, very angry. The police had to disguise Hare and smuggle him out of Edinburgh, 
after the mob showed up calling for his head. Even then he was in trouble because he was recognized en route by the junior counselor representing the family of one of the victims who happened to be on the same coach. By the time he reached his destination, the police had to be called again to ensure his safety because yet another angry crowd had gathered. The police arranged for a decoy to lead the crowd away long enough so they could smuggle Hare back into prison in Dumfries. Once the crowd worked out where he was, it took a further 100 special constables to surround the building and restore order. In the wee hours of the morning, he was taken out, led off down the road under militia guard, and pointed at the English border. What happened to him after that is unknown, but he was neither seen nor heard from again. But that wasn't the end of the Birkenhair legacy, not by a long shot. What they did way back then still echoes through to today. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. It's dead bodies again, be warned. If you remember our previous episode, you'll no doubt recall that in the 3rd century BCE, Ptolemy I of Egypt was the first ruler to really make it okay for medical practitioners to cut open cadavers for the purposes of learning about human anatomy. This wasn't just because Ptolemy had a certain amount of morbid interest in participating in dissections himself, which he did. Instead, it was because what he really wanted was to turn 3rd century Alexandria into a real, genuine center for all learning, including the kinds of learning which, up to that point, had been frowned upon because of both moral and social norms, and because no one really knew there was much of a field to study in the first place. See, prior to Alexandria and Ptolemy, the principal way of learning about human anatomy was to generally wait for something to go wrong and then see which, if any, sort of procedures and practices might fix it, either on purpose or accidentally. If you were a doctor or surgeon or chirurgeon or what have you, and someone came to you complaining of an ache in their stomach, you might well have no idea what was causing it, let alone what portions of anatomy might be in that area that could cause it. However, you wouldn't have let that stop you from cutting someone open, no anesthetic, mind you, and removing a bit of them to see if it made them any better. If it did, you might then write down something along the lines of, patient complained of ache in lower abdomen, cut out green wobbly bit, patient stopped complaining, maybe worth a try next time too. And if it didn't help, or they died, well, you'd know for next time that people need the green wobbly bit to live, so maybe don't take it out and human anatomy at the time was full of green wobbly bits that either did or did not have some bearing on a patient's life and might or might not make them better if removed. The truth is, this was not an inaccurate description of the whole of medicine for many, many years. Someone is sick, so you try something. Anything, really. If they got better or at least stopped complaining, then you would be emboldened to try that same thing on someone else. If enough people got better, or at least stopped complaining to you about their aches and pains, you'd write that down in your little medical diary and try it again first time the next time someone had a similar complaint. This is how you end up with such delightful remedies as applying a paste of dead mouse to cure toothache, drinking water from the skull of a dead man, we should hope so, to cure epilepsy, and rubbing a plague victim's body with a live, de-feathered chicken as a cure. When you didn't know what did work, anything might. 
and if it happened by pure coincidence that someone got better after a treatment, you kept note of that treatment in case it might work again. So, when we say that the first real human anatomical studies began in 3rd century BCE Alexandria, this is what we mean. Anything prior to that was no more than random guessing, really. It wasn't until Herophilus came along and settled in Alexandria to do dissections that a real understanding of what was inside a human body and how it all worked really began to occur. Unfortunately, as we pointed out last episode, he overdid it by quite a wide margin and put everyone off the practice for the next several hundred years. No one really thought dissecting live criminals was the way to go with the whole thing, even though it was a necessary step. It was just too unpleasant to be permitted. By the time Herophilus died, human dissection was no longer permitted. It wasn't entirely Herophilus' fault, though. A new school of thought, and therefore learning, had turned up. Empiricism taught that knowledge, real, useful knowledge, only came from sensory experience. Or to put it another way, you had to do experiments and observe the results to really know whether anything was anything at all and have any hope of learning something. Cutting cadavers open and looking at the bits just wasn't good enough and had very limited use. After all, when you were done cutting up a cadaver, all you had were bits and no amount of experimenting on them would yield anything other than more bits. You had to be able to form a hypothesis and test it in order to observe the results and gain new knowledge. And really, you could only learn about the human body by experimenting on a living one. The dead ones were just so much useless organic matter. Empiricists thought the whole dissection thing was useless for learning about people. What you needed for the best results was non-invasive observation. Of anything, really. It didn't even have to be something specific. Just watch and learn. And when that didn't work, which you can sort of see why it might not, what was not being far removed from the old guess-and-cut method... The next best course was to study the old texts located all around the joint in Alexandria. Surely the classical texts contained all the necessary knowledge, if only they could be analyzed thoroughly enough. Particularly useful to this method would be all the great works stored in the Great Library of Alexandria, the biggest repository of ancient knowledge of its time. Think of the gains to be made just by studying and analyzing the vast trove of information from some of the greatest thinkers of history already stored there. Which makes it a darn shame the whole thing burnt down with the rest of Alexandria in 389 CE. In truth, though, the Great Library had been in decline for quite a long time before then. Some scholars estimate that at the library's height, it held nearly 400,000 scholarly scrolls on a variety of subjects. In its lifetime, the library played host to such ancient luminaries as Eratosthenes of Cyrene, Aristophanes of Byzantium, and Aristarchus of Samothrace. But those had been a long time ago. By the end of its useful life, the library had seen more than one fire, several invasions, the dissemination of most of its texts to other satellite libraries, and a general loss of reputation and status until, when it was finally destroyed fully, it was little more than another old building in Alexandria. Its loss wasn't really mourned. But with Alexandria leveled and the library gone, a major center for learning was lost, and with it any hope for the return of cadaver dissection as a means of learning human anatomy 
for many, many years. In part, it was limited by the Christian church, which, as you may recall, has some pretty big ideas about what should and shouldn't happen to one's body after death. It wouldn't be until the 12th and 13th centuries that dissection in cadavers became sort of okay again as a means to study anatomy. For much of the intervening time, researchers had to make do with various other animals and hope they were somehow analogous to humans. Monkeys, apes, pigs, rabbits, mice and rats, and other creatures were disassembled, and the results applied to human medicine with what can only charitably be described as mixed results. Truth be told, very few creatures contain systems of any sort that work in ways directly relatable to humans, and no one animal is a perfect analog. Bits of pigs might closely resemble human skin and hearts, but it would be a mistake to assume the rest of the pig did as well. Monkeys and apes aren't adapted in the same ways humans are to their environment and life. Some things are close, but close only counts in... well, you know. The ability to learn about human anatomy was very, very limited. So when the church began to lighten up in the 12th and 13th centuries, there was a veritable run on human cadavers. Well, not exactly a run at first. See, in 1231, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II issued a decree stating that the human body could be dissected once every five years for anatomical studies, and attendance was required for all who were training to practice or currently practicing medicine or surgery. As this proved more and more useful and more knowledge was gained, the church relaxed its strict rules about the handling of cadavers. This was all well and good for the church and surgeons, but there were still those who had a major problem with the idea. As we discussed last time, public perception of dissections was still pretty poor, again largely thanks to the strictures of religion and the fear that a body dissected on earth would not then be properly reunited with its soul in the afterlife. And it wasn't just Christianity that held this belief. Other religions had a stigma against it as well. In the scientific community, things really took off and the demand for cadavers increased, but because of the negative perception among the general public, only the bodies of executed criminals could legally be used for dissection. In fact, it was because of this negative perception that dissection ruined your chances at a happy afterlife that it was often given as part of the sentence for a criminal offense. It wasn't enough just to hang a person for their crimes the judge would also sentence them to be turned over to the anatomists once their hanging was complete. Removed from this life and prevented from arriving in the next. All very neat and tidy. So potent and effective did the threat of dissection become that by the 17th century, over 200 offenses were on the books that could be punished by hanging and subsequent dissection. Even so, by the time of Burke and Hare, the demand for cadavers had far outstripped the ability of legal cadavers to meet it. In the 1700s, hundreds of people had been executed each year. The list of crimes for which you could be immediately executed was so long as to be nearly ridiculous, and included offenses against public health, grand larceny, burglary, offense by bankrupts, forgery, and just generally hanging out with people who might be intending to run a con. Just for context, grand larceny was defined at the time as the theft of goods worth more than 12 pence. 
Fortunately, reforms to the criminal code meant that the number of executions in the 19th century had dropped to as low as 55 a year. Most of the rest were simply transported to Australia and similar places. While this was good news for some, for anatomists it was terrible. Medical science was finally taking off. 500 cadavers a year were needed. But as the field of study grew and demand sharply increased, supply ran ever lower. And we told you how that panned out with Burke and Hare. But what we didn't tell you was what happened after. In 1829, Burke's sentence was carried out and Hare fled the country. And you would have thought that would have been enough to warn people off the whole grave robbing thing, knowing that the likely sentence would include dissection because if there's one thing that courts like, it's a good precedent. But no, of course not. Instead, what you got was the London Burkers. And it's exactly what you think it is. A group of body snatchers who looked at what had happened to Burke and Hare and thought to themselves, well, that seems like a good way to make money to me. As always, where there is demand, supply will follow. John Bishop, Thomas Williams, Michael Shields, and James May. No, not that James May, nor that John Bishop. All decided to become resurrection men. A tidy little term for grave robbers. Now, to be fair to Burke, these men had been operating for a number of years already by the time of the Burke and Hare murders, so it isn't entirely fair to say they were inspired by Burke. By Bishop's own estimate, they dug up and sold to anatomists some 500 to 1,000 bodies during their 12 years of operation. And they did not discriminate. They sold to anyone and any college that would take the bodies on offer. Their big screw-up was called the Italian Boy Murder. On the 5th of November, 1831, what is described as a suspiciously fresh corpse of a 14-year-old boy was delivered to King's College School of Anatomy after Bishop and May had previously tried to sell the body at Guy's Hospital and been refused. King's College anatomist Richard Partridge summoned the police when it seemed obvious to him that the body had never been buried. Subsequent searches of the properties where the men lived turned up substantial evidence, including the clothing and effects of several victims of the men. The executions of those convicted took place in December of 1831, in front of a crowd of 30,000. And that was it. The public, and more importantly, Parliament, had had enough. Between Burke and Hare and the London Burkers, along with a few smaller incidents, it became clear that the situation was out of control. The only solution was to provide for the demand of the medical schools in a legally authorized way, thereby taking all the profit out of grave robbing and the provision of corpses. In 1832, the Parliament of the United Kingdom passed the Anatomy Act of 1832. Essentially, it gave doctors, teachers of anatomy, and bona fide medical students permission to dissect donated bodies, changing and revising the nearly 80-year-old Murder Act of 1752, which only allowed for executed murderers to be used. Of course, calling it the Anatomy Act of 1832 isn't quite accurate. The legislation had been floating around for years. An anatomical society was formed in 1810 to try to get such a law on the books, even back then, and eventually they did see some action with the formation of a select committee in 1828 to report on the proposal. 
It had come up in the House of Lords in 1829, but a petition by the Royal College of Surgeons opposing it, combined with the opposition of Archbishop of Canterbury William Howley, saw it withdrawn. It took Burke and the Burkers to apply enough public pressure to finally pass the House of Lords in 1832. With the Act, it became possible for any person having lawful possession of a body to permit it to undergo anatomical examination, provided no relative objected. And a person could donate the corpse of a next-of-kin in exchange for burial at the expense of the anatomy school. It also gave physicians, surgeons, and students legal access to corpses unclaimed after death, specifically those who died in hospital, prison, or the workhouse. And goodness, there were a lot of people in the workhouse. Which, if you don't know, was where you put people who weren't able to support themselves financially. They would be given employment and the opportunity to work off their debts in exchange for the bare minimum in room and board. The Poor Act of 1834 meant that if you were poor and wanted economic relief from the government, you had to go into the workhouse to be considered. As time went on, the workhouse became the last refuge of the elderly, infirm, and sick. But mostly what it meant was that there were a lot of available cadavers for the anatomy schools now. Since those in the workhouse were, by definition, too poor to afford their own burials, the sensible thing to do was to donate their bodies to the anatomy schools, who would then be obliged to bury them when the cadavers had served their purpose. And in this way, the schools had all the cadavers they needed, and resurrectionists were put out of business. Thanks to the Anatomy Act of 1832, and others like it around the world, the course of science, particularly related to human anatomy, was finally able to advance. But you may still be wondering about that statement we made at the beginning of our first episode about the cadaver, the one where we said you couldn't escape the dead because they were all around you? Well, it's true. And we don't just mean in the sense of medical research, though there is that too. The cadaver is used for more than just the study of straight-up human anatomy. If you are of a certain vintage and have had an operation of some sort, chances are pretty good that your operating surgeon studied and practiced on a cadaver in medical school. Plastic surgeons, too. It's true that more recently these duties are being taken over by artificial cadavers or computer modeling, but until very recently, training was all done with actual cadavers. Of course, most people know about various body farms around the country, where cadavers can teach about patterns of decay. Information which is useful in not only understanding how decay works and the processes involved, but also in solving crimes. If you drive, you can thank a cadaver for helping to test the safety equipment in your vehicle. Crash test dummies are very good at not only experimental Canadian rock, but also at helping researchers understand how hard the various forces involved in a crash are. What they aren't so good at is demonstrating the sorts of injuries likely to be incurred from such forces, and how the entire process affects an entire human body. That information can only be obtained through the use of cadavers. In these and many other ways, cadavers have helped the living to not only live better, but be alive to enjoy it all. From organ transplants to experiments in cryogenics and reanimation, to helping us understand ballistic effects, to showing us why and how the body's systems fail, we owe quite a bit to those who really have gone before us. Without them, 
we'd hardly even know ourselves. In more ways than one, the dead really are with us. Always. Thank you for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. We'd like to invite you to join with our supporters on Buy Me a Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode, it's ridiculously simple to offer your support there, and you don't even have to create an account. Just head over to buymeacoffee.com fiddleback and select one of our membership levels. In exchange, you'll get access to transcripts of the show, as well as early episode releases, among other things. Membership's not your thing? No problem. You can select the support tab to make a one-time donation with no strings attached. It's so very, very easy. Head over to buymeacoffee.com slash fiddleback and give it a look. We'd love to have you join us. And if you're already a supporter, thank you so very much. You're the coolest kid on the block. Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers by Mary Roach was instrumental in making this episode and is available in all your finer bookshops. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. One does like to feel as though one is still useful.